Turn with me if you, again, if you will, to Genesis chapter 2. Our main text this morning is Genesis 2, 18 to 25. <coughs> Although we're going to look somewhere else in a minute first. <coughs> Genesis 2. Well, the battle of the sexes has been raging since the fall. Men try to assert authority over women, and women resist. And men react and put women down. And women feeling wounded plot to get even. Men, therefore, feeling justified, get harsh and demanding. Women, convinced they're being oppressed, determine they don't have to take it anymore. And on and on it goes. As men and women battle against one another, in marriage and outside of marriage, often in a joking, playful manner, but too often with a bitterness and alienation barely veiled, by the laughter. But for Christians, things must be different than that. We can't allow, cannot allow ourselves to be driven by our own sinful desires, our own sinful reactions, or by the mood and the rhetoric of our culture. We must be biblical. We must allow God through his word and his spirit to challenge and change both our tendencies toward male chauvinism and our tendencies toward feminism. Well, as we pursue that challenge to understand and to practice God's intended order between the sexes, as we pursue that, there is no more important text in the whole Bible than the one we come to this morning in Genesis 1 and 2. These texts are important because here we have revealed God's original design before sin marred the relationship between men and women and touched off this continual battle and distorted our thinking so that we cannot even conceive of it rightly apart from our own prejudices. Here's the picture before all of that. These verses are also important because these verses are repeatedly appealed to throughout the rest of the Bible. For example, in 1 Corinthians 11, when the Apostle Paul wants to talk about women and men in worship, he takes us back here to make his point. And in Matthew 19, when Jesus is asked about divorce and he wants to talk about divorce, he takes us back here to teach us. And in, second, in 1 Timothy 2, when the issue turns to leadership in the church, we're pointed back here for information, for a framework, for guidance as to how we'll sort out those things. Here we have God's first and clearest word on the relationship which he has ordained between men and women. Now the first of these crucial passages we've actually read before and thought about but we sit over this part of the subject, I'm only mentioning it as we went, until we got to the second passage so that we could look at both of these together. That first passage is back in chapter 1, and let's start there 
And then we'll, we'll read that and have some things to say in the first point, and then we'll move on to chapter 2. Chapter 1, verse 26 and 27. This is the first account, the general account of the creation of man. Then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. The first point we want to see comes from this text primarily, and that's this, that God created men and women equal. God created men and women equal. The past few decades all over the world, women claiming equality with men have trampled down one gender barrier after another, often leaving age-old traditions in shambles and often alienating lots of men along the way. Well, how are we as Christians to see those developments? Is there any truth to support that, or should we be standing against any such changes? Well, without endorsing everything that's gone on, this morning we have to admit that God created men and women equal. We see that equality back here in the first word about mankind in Genesis 1, 26 and 27. Here God says, let us make man in our image. And man's identity as God's image bearer becomes the thing that sets him apart from the rest of creation. He's not just another animal. He is like God. But who exactly bears that image, distinct from everything else? Well, the text leaves no doubt. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. At this most important point, in understanding the very essence of humanity, the scripture clearly indicates that women, equally with men, bear the image of God. Though we should reject the notion that it is sexist language to God, call God our Father, as the Lord commands us. Though the thought of calling God our Mother is uh, totally foreign to the Bible. We do not want to say for even one moment, that women reflect the image of God or bear the image of God one bit less than men do. Women are equal in created dignity, equal in their God-given capacity to display the image of their Creator. God made it so. God created men and women equal. We see that equality not only in the discussion of what man is, but also in the discussion of what man does. I'm speaking of what we call the creation mandate that's given in these verses. Where we read in verse 28 that God said, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Now everything that we humans do is an outworking of that command from God. It is an obedience to the creation mandate that we build things, that we, we uh, manage wildlife, 
that we uh, study botany, that we do engineering, that we pursue political office, that we invent new machines, that we mine the store back home. It's, it's in pursuit of the creation mandate we're, we're called to exercise dominion in God's name over all of his creation as stewards of the earth. But to whom has God given that mandate? Verse 26 says, let them, male and female, rule. Verse 28 says, God blessed them, male and female, and said to them, male and female, be fruitful and multiply and rule the earth. There's no question about it. Women not only equally share the image of God, women share equally with men in the creation mandate from God to his image bearers to exercise dominion as stewards of his earth. God created men and women equal. And this is not just a fluke. It's not some truth that's hanging precariously on the use of the plural rather than the singular pr uh, pronoun back here in some ancient Hebrew text. When we come to the New Testament, we read the same thing, even more explicitly. For example, in Galatians 3, the Apostle Paul is explaining the radical fulfillment of God's promises, which, have, have come in, which has come in, uh, now to those who are joined in Christ and have been made new creatures in Christ. Listen to what he says. He says, you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are one in Christ. You see, it's not just in the original creation that God created men and women equal. But here in the recreation in Christ, this wonderful fulfillment of all things, God created men and women equal. Closely related to our union with Christ are the events of Pentecost in Acts, recorded in Acts 2. For it was when God gave his spirit to the church that we were joined to Christ. The spirit is the one who joins us to Christ. Well, when God sent his spirit, strange signs and wonders accompanied his coming in defense of what was happening, the Apostle Peter stood up to explain. And when he did, he said, this is what was spoken of in the days of Joel. But listen to what he said. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. You see, here in the creation, here in, here in the New Testament, when not just the creation mandate, but the Great Commission is in view, we see evidence again. God created man and woman equal. So if women equally bear the image of God, And if women have equally been given the creation mandate, and if women are equally joined to Christ in the recreation, and if women equally possess the Holy Spirit of God, what way is it then in which they're inferior to men? 
None. None. Anyone who takes Peter's statement that wives are the weaker vessel to imply some inferiority has missed the point. Any view of men and women which views men as intelligent and capable while viewing women as ignorant and backward, that's, it misses the point. Any notion that man has meaningful responsibility while woman is fitted for menial tasks is an affront to God's creation. Such a perspective is foreign to the Bible. It's in conflict with the Creator. For God created men and women equal. Oh, I know that there's a long history of thinking otherwise in the church. Especially among men. But it's wrong. Any of you who think that to be the head of your home you have to keep your wife in the dark because she's probably too dumb, dumb to understand anyway, you need to repent of that. That's an affront to God. You who think that it's all right to insult and put down women as if they're second-class citizens in the kingdom, you need to repent of that. These are God's precious daughters you're talking about. You who think it's all right to view the church as the good old boys club where women are tolerated but not really needed, you need to repent of that. God has given his spirit to these sisters with gifts that are needed in the church. God has ordained that men and women are created equal. Now, if there were no such thing as marriage, if singleness were the normal state of man, of women, throughout the scripture, perhaps we could just stop here. We could say men and women are equal, they're slightly different sometimes, but uh, basically they have the same identity and they have the same dignity and they are given the same task. We could glory in our personhood and go on. Oh, but in the scripture, God calls marriage the norm. Singleness is a very special gift, which is given to some people who God has chosen for special ministry, but that's the exception. Marriage is the norm. And in society, we cannot escape the way that marriage roles affect other things. But here's where the trouble lies. It's in the marriage context that most of the problems occur between men and women. So we need to see the rest of the picture as God ordered it, including his design for marriage and the roles that he has for us there, which brings us to this more expanded text in Genesis 2. Turn to Genesis 2 over a page, perhaps. Let's read verse 18 to 25. Here's the expanded account of the creation. The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field and all the birds of the air. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock and the birds of the air and all the beasts of the field. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. And so the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. 
Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. And the man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. And for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and will be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Here we find a second truth. And the second truth is this, that God has defined different roles for men and women. God has defined different roles for men and women. While holding on tightly to this truth that we've already learned about equality, here we need to see that at the very same time, the very same God has established an intentional ordering in his creation of men and women. Now that order is found in a couple of ways here in this text. First of all, there's a chronological order. Though Genesis 1 has men and women, male and female, both created on the sixth day, this expanded account makes it clear that the man was actually created sometime before the woman. It's almost a humorous element in this text. Man is here, and God has put him in the garden. God sends him to work. Now, God looks at man, and he says, it's not good that this man's alone. God, who has looked at everything he's made and said, it's good, it's good, it's good. He looks at man alone, and he said, that's not good. God knows that. Adam doesn't know it yet. So God sends him to work, and he begins his work. God brings him to animals. He begins to study this, these animals. Look at their various characteristics. Find them names. Analyze what kinds of uh, classes and species they fit into. And, uh, and he dutifully goes about his work. And as he does, he can't help but notice that all these animals have partners. Many of them are a whole lot like him in one way or another, but nobody seems to be suitable to be his partner. And so he goes about his work. God, who's dealing with him, knows how to deal with his children. Just lets Adam stew in that for a little while. He looks, and there's nobody suitable for him. Wonderful animals. They can run like the wind, but none has his intellect. None has his soul. None can communicate with him like he speaks. None knows God like he knows God. There's just nobody suitable to him. And God's made his plan. Now the man's ready for God's plan. And you know the story. God causes Adam to fall into a deep sleep in the sight of man, God takes a rib, closes up his flesh, and he fashions a woman. Then God brings her to the man who says when he sees the woman, at last, my own flesh and blood. <laughs> That's just about exactly what that text means. It's brought into English. Finally, flesh of my flesh and bone of my bone. Now there's a chronological order here. Adam was there first. God then created woman later. Does that imply some superiority of man 
Well, I don't think so. Does it imply some, does it imply some superior, superiority of women? I, I, I saw a bumper sticker once and it said, sure, God created Adam first and Eve, everybody makes a rough draft. Is that, is that the point, that uh, Adam was a, a poor tribe and now the woman is the real masterpiece? No, I don't think that's the point either. There's no superiority and inferiority implied here, but there is some seniority implied. Now, I wouldn't pick up on that, but God does. When we turn to, when we look in 1 Corinthians 11, the fact that the woman came from the man is used to argue that the man is the head. In other words, the headship is somewhat like seniority. If you've ever been in the military, you've learned something about seniority. What does it mean that some officer is the senior ranking officer? Does that mean he's smarter than everyone else? For sure, it does not mean that. I saw in a magazine this week that a guy that I used to pull alert with is now a major general, and I'm thinking, God forbid. No, not smarter. Does it mean that he is, has more education? No. Does it mean that he's more skilled than you are? Not necessarily. I've known some pretty dumb generals. But it does mean that he's in charge. He has responsibility for the unit. And so God has, designed, has designated the man to have seniority, to be the head, to have the ultimate responsibility in the marriage relationship. He didn't set aside the equality. He didn't make any judgment about the brains or the skill of the woman, that it would somehow be less. But God did define an ordering of the role. It's not just the chronological order that, that establishes that. There's also defined a functioning order. Different functional roles for men and women. Think about it. What motivated God to create the woman in the first place? Why did he do that? What does the text say? Because God saw it is not good for man to be alone. In other words, it was man's need of companionship that caused God to create the woman. Or to state it very bluntly, the woman was created for the man. That's exactly how the New Testament says it. We read, for man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. Now there's no doubt that this truth has been used to imply that man is superior and woman is inferior. That's not what God intended and he leaves us, uh, he doesn't leave us in suspense about what exactly he did intend for he gets right into it in verse 20. God makes his intention clear. He says he is making a suitable helper for the man. That's the term that in the older Bible, versions of the Bible 
uh, where, it's where it says help meet, it says exactly the same thing, a help who is meet, that is, is appropriate, suitable. We don't talk that way anymore. The suitable helper. What's even more interesting is to look at uh, people that know about Hebrew and listen to what the Hebrew words actually tell us about what a suitable helper is. The, the, the phrase in Hebrew is ezer konegdo, suitable helper. Ezer is the word for helper. Other than here, it's used 19 other times in the Bible. In 15 of those 19 times, God is the one who is designated as the helper. In three more of those 19 times, the word is used to state that all the help of man is useless. Only God's help matters. So as one author comments, if one excluded Genesis 2.20, it could be said that only God gives effectual help to man. He's the one who is the great helper. In, 18, in 20, no, 18 of the 19 times that it's used other than here. But God chose to make a woman to serve in his place, in the life of his creature, man. You see, Ezer clearly implies order. It implies a servant role. It implies a helper role. It never implies inferiority, for it's used predominantly of God himself. God created man and woman equal, but he also defined specific roles. Then there's that other word, konegdo. It means opposite, or corresponding to, or suitable, or complementary to. David Atkinson wrote, there is no sense of inferiority implied here. Rather, it is one who is like him, but like opposite him, to give a very literal rendering. Like him, but like opposite him. In other words, God made man a complementary partner who was just like him, only different. One who could think just like a man thinks, only different. <laughs> One who could love just like a man loves, only different. One who can make decisions and act just like a man makes decisions and acts, only different. One who could know and worship God with man, only differently. This woman is not a luxury item. She is a necessary counterpart to help man bear the image of God, to help man fulfill God's mandate to them both. The point is, yes, there is an intentional order in God's creation of man and women. Order having to do with seniority and function. God has clearly defined different roles. But this need not call into question equality. I know people say it can't be that way. If women are equal to men, then there can be no difference in roles. There can be no headship and no helpership. Sorry. That's what God said he intended to do from the beginning. 
whether we like it or not. That's what God said. What's happening in our day is that people are abandoning one or the other of these biblical principles. If you emphasize equality and abandon this principle of ordering of distinctive roles, what do you get? You get the feminist, obsessed with women's rights. You get women resisting any definition of a supporting role, being a helper. Women keeping their maiden names, pursuing careers and lives unrelated to my husband. I'm doing my thing. Your husband's taking supporting roles. In fact, you get a society where any meaningful distinction between men and women is being thrown out. Demands that anyone can hold any position and do anything indiscriminately. There's no difference. If, on the other hand, you emphasize the order the for-man and from-man kind of statements, and abandon this principle of equality, what do you get? You get the classic male chauvinist. Women are there to serve me. Worse, women are there as man's plaything. You hear women told, stay in your place. You hear women's wonderful gifts and contributions trashed. They don't matter. We don't need them. They're not important. This is the world we live in. Every day we are being encouraged to throw away one or the other, depending on who we're talking to. Throw away the equality or throw away any role distinction. Such is the battle of the sexes. But I tell you, the Bible teaches both. And you cannot escape it. And you need not escape it. These are glorious truths. They're humbling truths, but they're glorious truths. It's humbling for a wife to realize I was made for another to meet his needs. But it's also a glorious truth for the wife to know I am an equal partner. There's nothing he does that's not what I'm doing. And he can't do it without me. It's a humbling thing for a man to realize I'm not sufficient. I can't just do it alone. I actually need this wife. That's a humbling thing for a man. But it's a glorious thing for a husband to say, God loved me enough to make a partner who's designed to help me. And together we can serve our Creator and do what He intended as one flesh. This morning I call you to stop fighting against God's truth. And this is the wisdom of our gracious Creator. And yes, it's hard to know how to apply it all. Accept it. It's from the Lord. And you may say, well, why bother? That's just not the way our culture sees it anymore. E even if you're right, Pastor Bert, why fight for something that nobody wants to hear anymore? Well, let me tell you why before we close. First of all, because you bear the image of God. We are made to bear the image of God. And as we saw before when we were looking at Genesis 1, that image, among other things, is relational. 
We are called to bear the image of Holy Trinity. Now when we talk about the Trinity, the triune God, we talk about the essential Trinity, which is the three persons of the Godhead in total equality, one God, in one essence. We also, though, talk about the economic Trinity. That is, that there's a subordination of roles within the Godhead so that the Son submits himself to the Father. And the, and the Spirit is subject to the Son, proceeds from the Son and from the Father. But you see, when we distort the relationship in which God has made us, the relationship between man and woman, when we sacrifice either the equality or the subordination of roles, we misrepresent the triune God whose image we bear. That's why it matters. We present an erroneous picture of what perfect relationship really is. There's another reason. According to Ephesians 5, in the marriage relationship, we're called to reflect the glorious relationship between Christ and his church. The divine bridegroom and his bride. But when husbands fail to love their wives as Christ loved the church, when they treat their wives as inferiors, when they treat their wives as underlings that they would not stoop to be like them, not worthy of their love, or when wives refuse to be subject to their husbands as the church is subject to Christ, when they become bitter and resentful at their husbands' God-given headship, when those things happen, we may be doing just what everybody else in the world is doing. But from God's point of view, we have smudged the picture. We have distorted the beautiful portrait that he's painting before the world of the perfect relationship between Christ and his church. That's why it matters. Don't say it doesn't matter. As we conclude... We just get right down to the nuts and bolts of the matter. God's designed for men and women like nuts and bolts. The man's the bolt, and the woman, no pun intended, is a nut. Some more than others. So which is superior, the bolt or the nut? What a dumb question. <laughs> They're made of the same stuff. They're made by the same company. They're made for the same purpose, generally. Neither is superior. They're different. Consider the bolt. It's commonly used first. It sets the pace as to when and where application is going to be. The nut was made for it, designed with this particular bolt in mind. The nut attaches to it to help it, to 
holds securely. Does that mean the bolt's more important than the nut? Just leave the nut off sometime and see. You see, as important as the bolt is, it's not self-sufficient. Or consider the nut. By itself, what is it? Everything about it has the bolt in mind. The size, the tread, everything. Does that mean that it's just a zero then, that it's useless and weak and unimportant? Well, it better not be because it has the, very, the bolt is dependent upon it being made of the same stuff, having the same strength in order for them to function. But couldn't the bolt and the nut be used just independently? Well, sure. Make good paperweights. Stick it in the door to keep the door from closing all the way. Might throw it a stray cat. They're useful. But if they are going to function for the one purpose they were made to function, They must be both equally strong and reliable, and they must be functioning in their designed order, the nut made for the bolt. So God created equality, the creation of men and women. But he also designed an order. He defined roles appropriate each. That's God's word. Amen. Dear Father, we have so far to go to know all these things and to know how to apply them. It's all right for us, Lord, to disagree on exactly how we work out all the application. But Lord, we see different problems and we see different situations. We have to struggle with how to work it all out. Lord, may we be in agreement on the things that you teach us about the very essence of our, of our being. Lord, may we not just be in agreement. May we delight in what you've made us. Not desire to be any different. Not arrogantly act like we are something different than what you've made us. Lord, may these truths settle into our person and control our thinking Bring our thoughts and our attitudes and our practices more and more into conformity with what you want us to look like. And Lord, we're very conscious of the fact that that's very different than the world and it's very different than loud voices in the church on one side and the other. Oh God, help us. Help us that we might know how to walk in your truth and not be swayed by anything else. Give us grace for this. Give us love and patience and, and long-suffering with one another for this. Give us a heart of unity in this. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.